Hello, if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 3, 21 to 22, that would be great. Uh, We're going through Luke's gospel at the moment, and I really want to pick off up where Jonathan left off two weeks ago um, in the story of Jesus' baptism. He he moves through from Jesus presented at the temple to the baptism. I'm going to pick up the overlap will be there, and there will be great overlap as you're going to see. I think I'll move this, this might do myself a damage otherwise. It's quite a, quite a good little activity of dodging stuff as you preach. That could be dangerous. I'll leave it there for a sense of risk. That's good. Um, Luke three twenty one to 22 says this. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Reading from the New Living translation. Right, so you've got this story where Jesus is baptized and the kind of pinnacle of the story is this voice comes from heaven apparently audibly to everyone around saying, look, this is my son. And as Jonathan pointed out two weeks ago, this has been a theme that's been running through Luke right from the start. In Luke 1.35, when the angel announces to Mary uh, her rather unique form of uh, conception uh, that's happening, uh, the angel says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. So the angels say, this guy will be the Son of God. Then Jesus picks up on it, you Often interesting to wonder how this happened. When did he realize the fullness of his identity? But as he's a boy presented in the temple, he's in the temple. His mum and dad somehow lose him. They wander off, come back frantic, find him there. Say, what, son, what are you doing? And he says, well, look, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And what Luke's communicating is the angel said he's going to be the son. Jesus is realizing he's the son. And now suddenly a massive voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son. So I would have thought for all of you here, you're thinking, great, we've got it. Fantastic. We, Luke, we've subtle as nuance in your approach of presenting this. We like it. But job done. The voice from heaven seals it from me. Let's now find out what the son is going to do. We found out he's the son. There's, there's good stuff to be had here. Let's, what, does this, what does the son do? And uh, if Matthew and Mark's gospel do just this, they would go straight on. You're my son. The baptism goes to temptation. You then get some healings. You get some demons cast out. You have all the fun and games all kicking off, uh, seeing what the son actually does. But Luke, does he do that? No, he does not do that. Instead, Luke feels compelled at this point to wheel off into everybody's least favorite part of the Bible which is a list, a long list of names. (laughs) I don't know if that's yours. You might be thinking, oh, I love those bits. They're on my wall, but uh, I don't. (laughs) Um, But that's what he decides would be the best thing to do at this point. And today I want to look at this long list of names, this genealogy, and also dip into the following story, the story of Jesus' temptation as well, because I want to show you that this list of names here is not some random aside that Luke uh, has put in or felt compelled because of the Uh, literary traditions of his day to throw in at this point because you see Luke Luke is simply not uh, content to move on from this topic of sonship two weeks ago if you were here and heard Jonathan speak he talked about us being sons and that's what because what Luke was talking about but Luke won't let it rest and so I'm not gonna let it rest today either and Luke actually has a very specific and key question in his mind at this point which is this what does it mean to say that Jesus is the son of God What does it mean? Now, if any of you have ever had a conversation uh, with a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or a Christadelphian, maybe, and many others as well from different groups about Jesus' identity, who's ever been in a discussion like that? 
doing the dishes and knock on the door, people in suits, okay? Yeah, often it gets to this, like, yeah, the Son of God, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. Son of God, we're all sons of God, aren't we? We're all, we're all God made us, all, we're all sons. Or it, it means someone special, he's someone special, but it doesn't mean much more than that. Well, Luke, um, well, he actually doesn't go into here, and I'm not going to go into the issue of Jesus' divinity. Luke doesn't really... That's not on his radar at this point. It definitely will be later. He does want to clear up the ambiguity about, oh, well, the Son of God could really mean anything to anyone. Because actually, the question of, uh, of what it means to Jesus to be the Son of God is important for two reasons. And it's important, firstly, because we appreciate the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son of God, that we don't devalue Jesus. That's vitally important. But secondly as well, we need to understand what kind of sons of God we are as well. And we see that by looking at Jesus, the model of sonship. Now, you might think, well, come on, we've done this. Who cares? <laughs> I've been a Christian for a long time. I know about sons and daughters and all that stuff. I'm even, I might even know that if I'm a daughter, I'm still a son. And it all gets complicated, but I know this stuff. Well, actually, knowing you're a son is very important. I think it gives you two things. I think it gives you direction and it gives you confidence. And I'll give you an example to help you. Uh, little Brooklyn Beckham has been in the news recently. Son of David and Victoria Beckham. Why has he been in the news? What's happened to him? What's he done? Anyone know? Is, what's that? Well, if he had, that would be a, probably Marks and Spencers. I've, I've not seen that one. I'm sure he is. Make, Chelsea trials. He's taken time out of his modelling to take a trial for Chelsea and uh, they've snapped him up. They've taken him. 13-year-old Brooklyn Beckham is now on Chelsea's books. Now, that's pretty good. I wish I'd got a trial. Probably not with Chelsea, but with another reputable club. Um, <laughs> actually, yeah, another reputable club, not Chelsea. Um, uh, so he's done quite well for himself. And I reckon, actually, to get to the point he's got to, I think his knowledge of sonship would be very, very important. I reckon when he was thinking, pondering, as I'm sure a young Beckham would, um, whether, uh, whether he should be focusing solely on his studies or whether he should give some time to maybe outdoor exercises as he was growing up, I reckon his idea of sonship would have helped give him direction in making that decision. Look, I'm a Beckham. Playing football is likely to be a successful enterprise for me. So actually, I've done my maths homework. I'm going out to play some football. It would have given him direction. I think his sonship would also have given him confidence to persevere. I'm sure he's had some bad games. Maybe he could have had a bad trial with another club. And he might have thought, I doubt my ability. But again, if I was Brooklyn Beckham, I would have thought, well, wait a minute here. I am a Beckham. My dad is David Beckham. He's amazing at football. So probably it's worth getting up again and giving this a go. Knowing you're a son brings you direction and it brings you sonship. Now, here's the tricky bit. Because... If David Beckham's your father, that gives you a little clear direction. Because let's face it, he's not really a jack of all trades, is he? He's, he's, he's not good at loads of stuff. So you think Beckham football. But it's not the same, really, uh, with our Heavenly Father, is it? Um, I mean, our Heavenly Father's good at everything. So what, how does it narrow down your options? Oh, God, you're good at this. Oh, and you're good at this, and this, and this, and this. And we know we're not going to be good at everything. So how do we follow in the family line in that respect? I mean, God is very good at speaking stars into existence. I mean, should I think, well, I'm a son of the Father. I mean, I've tried. I've not had much luck so far. I need to do this more. Or God is really good at being the ultimate judge of all humanity. 
I have attempted this one, and it's never got me anywhere. Should I persevere knowing that I'm a son of my father? So basically then, today, I want to look at what it means for us to be sons of God as we look at Jesus. What family traits should we expect to see replicated in us, and what family activities should we expect to find success in? And as Luke is very quick, he wants to define sonship by looking at Jesus, helps us to answer this question of our sonship as well as us marveling at him. You see, that's, we've got a lot today. We've got all from the, a list of names. Wow. Great. Well, let's have a look at the list of names. The list of names, Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38 is Jesus' genealogy. Now you're wondering at this point, is he going to read them? Is he going to do it? The answer's no, I'm not reading them. I practiced lots of times. I did it in loads of great comedy ways. I had ideas. I just thought, no way, I'm not doing this. It's going to take ages. And here they all are in a minute font that you probably can't see, but at least I've made an effort, so there. Uh, but um, right, now at this point, with the list of names before you, there is a massive aside I could take here. And in a, in a way, I'd like to take it um, because it is important. Because one thing you might know, now some of this, you, this will be completely new and it will throw you for a moment or two, but there is another list of names just like this. In Matthew's Gospel, it comes right at the beginning of the Gospel, which you might think, oh, that's good. We get two genealogies of Jesus. What we do, and the problem with them is they are different genealogies. I don't know if you've noticed that before. Again, I'm going to the show of hands. Who's, who's, who knows this? This is a lingering theological issue. Yeah, okay, okay, that's good. I'm glad I'm mentioning it then. Uh, others are like, what? But I'll fix that as well in a second. Um, they're different genealogies. Now, I think particularly important in this is this has been picked up on in a number of the, uh, by the number of the new atheists uh, in that sort of movement as one of the key uh, criticisms of the Bible. And the argument will go like this. If we cannot trust even Jesus' family trees in the gospel, they get them wrong. How can we trust the gospels uh, at all? Now, two things need to be said about this. Firstly, while it seems uh, like a difficult problem, it is not an impossible problem to solve. Okay, we don't have to throw the Bible out at this point. And second thing I'd like to say is I simply don't have time to talk about it. So there we go. <laughs> but I, I, have a, I have a scheme, a, a clever scheme, which is that on the, on the church blog, which I think, the, uh, I think I've put it up on here, I, on the next slide, is there a, the, yes, there it is, beautiful. At precisely one o'clock, because otherwise I knew what would happen, you wouldn't be listening to me, even on your phones, uh, there will be a blog going up all about the genealogies, um, if the uh, scheduling thing goes right. And if you are really interested in that stuff, please check it out. And if you ever get questions on it, please check it out. And if you're thinking, just move on, I don't care. Great, let's go. Okay, brilliant. So why then does Luke jump in with this long list of names to outline in great detail Jesus' heritage at this point? That's the key question we've got in this passage. Well, I think the clue comes at the beginning of the names and at the end of the names. So we've got at the beginning... It says that Jesus is known. Remember, you've got the voice come from heaven just before. He's my son, the father says. And then Luke says, ah, yes, Jesus, he was known as the son of Joseph. So it's about sonship again. And as you wheel down, he's the Joseph, the son of Heli, etc., etc., etc. To the end, very interesting. It says, and the son, right back to Adam, the son of God in verse 38. Clearly, it's this issue of the sonship. What does it mean to be a son of God? The question is still ringing around Luke's head. Now, for the Jewish reader and the Jewish watcher of Jesus' baptism and the person at the time, they would have two categories for Son of God. They'd already have two ideas of that. And one is this idea that Luke picks up explicitly at the end of the passage of what's a Son of God? When the voice comes from heaven, what does the voice mean? Well, a bit like Adam. Adam was like a Son of God. 
And Luke obviously picks this up in the uh, genealogy. Now, got to be said, this is the only place in the Bible where Adam is called the son of God. It's an unusual phrase for him. Yet you can see where, this, where he's going with this, really. If, if my dad, I pick up G- DNA from him, I look a little bit like him, I'm in his image. Well, Adam was made in the image of the father. It, it seems sensible to be able to call him something like that. Adam is like God's son. So it would be very natural then for a Jewish reader of Luke or for a Jewish watcher of the baptism say, to say, oh, Jesus is God's son. I know what you mean. He's a, he's a son like Adam. He, it means he's, he's one of us. He's a human being. Because God made us all, didn't he? And we all carry his image. So Jesus is just a person. That's what's being said here. Now, Obviously, if you took this as the full measure of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, in a sense, that has drained the concept of any value at all. But it's not just a mistake that could have been made by Jewish readers uh, in those days. I think I find a lot, as Christians, that we often take a sort of brotherhood of man approach to sonship. And uh, we want to include all of humanity, and it's a, no, it's a kind of good and friendly thing to want to do. We want to include all of humanity in sort of God's big, fat, happy family. And actually what we end up doing then is everyone's a son, that's what it means. And we, we empty the reality of our own sonship, of any of its wonder and awe. Listen, Jesus was a man. Surely that's one of the big reasons for this genealogy here. Jesus was a man, and, uh, and that's got to be said. He's a, in that sense, he's a son of God like Adam was a son of God. But he's not just a son of God like that. For us, we are sons of God like Adam, made in the image of our father. But we are not just sons of God like that. So one category uh, for son of God for a Jewish reader would be Adam. Another, slightly unusual, was not an individual, but would have been a whole group of people. Who's the son of God? Someone watching the the baptism? They might have said, oh, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the people of Israel. In fact, this is the most common use of the term son of God in the Old Testament. So you've got in Exodus 4, for example, God appears to Moses and he's telling him what to do when he goes to Egypt. He says this, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he might serve me. So again, you've got a Jewish reader of Luke's gospel. He reads this. Oh, this is what happened. Oh, I know what he means. Jesus, son of God. It means he's a very devout member of the Son of God. He's a, it's a very lofty term for Jesus being identifying himself with the Jewish people. He's a religious and devout person. That's what it means. Now, this isn't explicitly mentioned in the genealogy, although you've got to say from Abraham onward, everyone in the list would have been members of the Son of God Israel in the list. But in this chapter, in, earlier in the chapter, in verse 8, it is explicitly mentioned, and Jonathan mentioned this last week. Let's go back a, a little bit. Remember what happened? John the Baptist baptizing people, dressed in those funny clothes and eating those funny food that he used to eat. But people still came to him. Amazing. Um, but you'd have thought he'd embrace them as he wants to baptize them. But no, he doesn't embrace them. He launches into this vitriolic assault on them as they come to be baptized. One part of which is this. These Jewish people coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. In verse 8, John says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. 
I mean, what's his problem? Why is John so angry? Well, John's getting at this point. For the Jewish people of his day, their being sons of God was simply about their religious heritage. They were descendants of Abraham. They were parts of God's people. It was their heritage and their religiousness that were their badges of sonship. They'd be like, we're Israel. We're Israel, God's son. So therefore, we too are God's children. That's what John had a problem with. And Luke, again, is coming against it here. Now, listen, clearly, Jesus was a Jew. I think it's very important to state this when, when there's an opportunity because of some of the darker moments in Christianity's history. There is no room for anti-Semitism in Christianity because God honored the Jewish people so much that he came down as a Jewish man. Jesus was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. He followed the entire law. In fact, he fulfilled the law. So in a sense, he was a son of God like Israel. But he wasn't just a son of God like Israel. For you here, if you're a Christian here, your sonship is not simply a badge of your religiousness. Calling you a son of God is not just like saying, yeah, I'm part of the Christian religion and I do some Christian things. No, no, it's a real sense of identity that should fill us with awe and should propel us into action. Now, at this point, if you were particularly contentious, you may want to object to me and say, well, wait a minute, Johnny, I'm not quite following you here. In that, what I've said so far is that Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is more than a son of God like Adam and more than a son of God like Israel. But actually, if you think about this, by including the genealogy here, he's actually laying himself completely open to that claim. You've got the, uh, God saying, you are the son of God. Then he goes, okay, quick, I'll just show you how Jesus was part of the son of God Israel and he's linked to the son of God Adam. And it looks like Luke then is saying, yeah, yeah, he's just like these two sons. And I'm making a big deal of it for nothing. Now, that would be the case if it wasn't for the next passage, which we are going to dip into, as I've said, but brings all of these strands together now. Because in the temptation story, I don't think I've often read it before, in light of what's happened before, we see that Luke now, having set up these possibilities, what does Jesus, what kind of son is Jesus? Now he says, okay, here's where your attention needs to turn, because this guy is a completely different kettle of fish, and your sonship should be modeled on him, not on Adam's, and not on Israel's. So Luke 4, uh, we are only going to read really 1 to 4, although you can flick ahead as we go, I'm sure. For Luke 4, 1 to 2, it says this. This is just after the baptism. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all, nothing all that time, and became very hungry. Okay, straight away... Luke identifies Jesus with the other two sons that we've talked about. The personnel remind us of Adam, the son of God. You see, Adam and Eve were the only other people in the whole Bible to have a direct temptation from the devil in this way. If you know the story, you will know that they didn't do particularly well in that temptation. So the question is, the gauntlet is thrown down by Luke here. Is Jesus just going to be a son of God like Adam? Or is he different? Well, whereas the personnel reminds us of Adam, the location reminds us of Israel in the temptation story. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert, it says. Well, if you remember the Old Testament history, Israel spent 40 years in the desert on their way to the promised land. 
And it's a very, very similar scenario. Deuteronomy uh, 8 verse 2 says this. Look at the similarities here. <clears throat> God talking to Moses says, Remember, um, no, uh, sorry, Moses talking to the people of Israel. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Four years in the wilderness for testing, led by God. Jesus, led by the Spirit, goes into the desert for 40 days to be tested. It's a deliberate point. Luke's a clever guy. It's, I, I sometimes like to stand up. I, I love the Bible because it's God's revelation. But you've got to know as well, this, these are not just random ideas being thrown together. This is good writing. Well done, Luke. Gold star. Anyway, <laughs> if you knew the story again, though, you'd know that Israel didn't fare any better than Adam and Eve. Israel, God's son, did just as badly as Adam's God's son. Because a whole generation of them were wiped out in the wilderness. And they made it to the promised land. But then a few hundred years later, they were utterly removed from that land because they had persistently disobeyed God. And so again, the question here is, will Jesus be a son like Israel or is he going to be different? Well, let's see. We'll see three things. Here, firstly, in verse 3, this is what happens. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, we've got it, Luke, it's about the Son of God. Okay, move on. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. I think the first thing here, instantly about Jesus, is he's very different to Adam and he's very different to Israel because he has a power that those guys never had. And you might think, Well, he hasn't done anything. Well, look at what the devil assumes here. The devil assumes to, for this temptation to have any value, Jesus must have been able to turn lo- uh, stones into loaves of bread. So the devil came to me and goes, Johnny, turn that stone into a steak. That's not a very good temptation. I mean, I'd, to be honest, I'd fall for it if I could, probably. Um, but I couldn't do it. The implication here is Jesus had the power to do something as phenomenal as that. And Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, oh, don't be ridiculous. I can't do something like that. No, that's not his answer at all. This son has a power far greater than Adam and far greater than Israel. Talks about how uh, Jesus was the key agent in creation in the New Testament. By him, the whole world was made. And of course, in Jesus' life, he demonstrates this power through all the things that he does. It says in a story later in Luke, he's walking through the crowd and a woman touches him and it says, power went out from him. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. Of course, at the end of his life, he defeats death itself. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power through his resurrection. Is Jesus a different type of son? Yeah, you bet he is. This one's got power. So what happens next? Verse 4, Jesus says this, but Jesus told him, talking to the devil, no, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. So Jesus resists the temptation. And uh, he resists the next two for that matter if you want to go on. He doesn't stumble at the next ones either. But I think from this we get the the two other things that we see that this son, son is considerably different from the others on. The first here is the obvious one, obedience. He is an obedient son, completely obedient to his father. Jesus well, let's face it, the devil's temptation here is reasonably, it's quite reasonable, it's quite an attractive thing. He's not eaten for days and days, and it's not inherently sinful, I suppose, if you could turn stone into bread. 
But actually, Jesus understands the Father's will and he obeys it completely. Remember, Adam and Eve were told, don't eat the apple. The devil came in the form of the serpent and straight away they fell for it. Straight away. And they disobeyed. Israel going to the desert. God says, have no other God but me. What's the next thing they do? They burn down their earrings and they make a gold calf and they worship it. They disobey. Those sons only needed one test and they failed miserably. Jesus is unbeatable by three here. And then, of course, he continues the rest of his life to the point of Gethsemane where with clenched teeth and with blood dripping from his forehead because of the utter revulsion at the thought of separation from his father, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Is Jesus a different type of son? Yeah, he's the only one to fully obey his father. And the other thing we see from verse 4 is an authority in Jesus as well. I think it's very interesting to contrast Jesus' treatment of God's word in this passage to how Adam and Eve treated God's word. Adam had said, in Genesis 3, if you wanted to, to look at it, but what had happened in that story is God had said these words. He said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So at the beginning of Genesis 3, the devil comes and what he does, he questions God's word. He says, how firmly do you know God's word here? So he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There's loads of tests in that question. Do you know the word of God? Well, actually... They come unstuck because Eve is immediately wobbly about the word of God. See if you can spot the wobble. She says this, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did not say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Oh, Sorry, God did say that. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, if you'd like to survey Genesis 1-2 to to find where God says, you shall not touch it, uh, you be my guest, you're not going to have much luck on that one. You see, Eve knows it kind of, But she's wobbly. She doesn't know God's word properly. And so the devil then moves in with the killer blow. You will not surely die. And she's wobbly on knowing it. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. She's not standing on the word of God at all. Compare this with Jesus. No. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. There is an authority modeled by Jesus the Son that is completely different from the way it's been done by the other two sons. And it's throughout the the Gospels, and later in Luke we see this. It often says the crowd were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Is Jesus a different type of son to just another human or just another religious person? Well, of course he is. He spoke with the authority that comes from a complete and total commitment to his father's word. So let's apply all of this stuff. It seems like we've gone on a bit of a journey. We're trying to map together some things Luke's put in. We've come to the conclusion. Well, how do we apply this? How does this matter for us? Well, the first application surely might be the most obvious, but is always the most important. We've got to love Jesus for this. We've got to follow Jesus for this. Listen, Jesus is completely unique in human history. He's the only one to have complete, total power over nature. He's the only one to fully obey his father. He's the only one who speaks with such authority he could even silence the devil. If you're here today and you follow a different son to Jesus, 
might be a, 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 a very clever teacher, philosopher, or a character in history, or maybe someone in your family who you really respect, who you want to live just like. Maybe it's a different religious leader. I don't want to say to you, you have chosen a lesser son. There is nobody like Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just a good human. He's not just another religious guy. He is the Son of God because he is God the Son. And he demands your allegiance. You might think, it's a bit harsh, demanding my allegiance. I want to be clear. This is not like a slave master with a stick saying, serve me. Jesus demands our allegiance like when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, I trust, having never done it before, the Grand Canyon demands your awe. When you look out at a beautiful sunset, that demands your attention. The sunset doesn't carry a big stick saying, look at me. No, no, you have to look at it. There's one figure in history that when you look at him, you have to keep looking. And his name's Jesus. Because he stands head and shoulders above any other. He's a different son. And I'd urge you, if you don't know him, to build your entire life around him. And the only response to such a son is to give him everything. Because that's who he is. That's how, the, that's how reality is. Respecting and following Jesus is lining up with how reality is. And how the human race is, because there's never been a son like him. Jesus' birth reset the calendars 2,000 years ago for the Western world, and he can reset your life. Follow him. It's the first application. Nothing could be more important. But there's a second application, particularly for those of us who are already following Jesus. And that's this. Understand that Jesus is the model of our sonship. Because there's a final twist in all this, because I've been at pains to lay out, and Luke is as well, the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son. But now we've got that, now we've, we've got, yeah, we, we understand that now, uniqueness, he's the Son, this is what it means. Let's listen to this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, says this, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son, so that he might be, Jesus might be, the firstborn among many brothers. What does it mean? It means this. We will never be the son. But our sonship now is modelled on him and not on Adam and not on Israel. Listen, this is speculation. But I don't think Brooklyn Beckham is ever going to be quite as good as his dad at football. He might be, but I don't think he is going to be. However, he is likely to exhibit some of his father's flair for the game. So it was probably a pretty good decision that he didn't progress with those maths lessons and went for football trials. I think Brooklyn will be happy with that one. I think he can be reasonably confident that when it gets tough, his sonship in that respect will motivate him onwards. And as I said at the beginning, though, we look at our Father and we think, look, God is too much to emulate. He doesn't give me a direction because he does everything and he does it so well and I can't do everything. But listen, God doesn't just leave us with a distant Father to emulate. He shows us a perfect Son. And actually, a perfect Son who calls us his brothers, cut from exactly the same cloth as the Son. So how should this direct your life? 
What activity should we persevere in confidently, knowing that as a son, we're likely to find success there? Well, the same three we've looked at already. Number one, step out as a son in the power of God. Jesus, the son, moved in incredible supernatural power. Now, look, I want to be honest, I'm unlikely to emulate the sheer scale of Jesus' miracles. I'll be clear on that. But he makes very, very clear that in this characteristic of sonship, this is passed on to us. He gathers the 12 together, and once he's got them, he goes, right, here you go, off you go. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. And he's been saying it to his followers ever since. Listen, you are a son of God if you are here as a Christian today. You are a younger brother of Jesus. You've got the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. And you should pursue miracles and supernatural power like Jesus did. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Pursue miracles and supernatural power. Of course, we're sons of God. We're younger brothers of Jesus. Now listen, you may occasionally have the odd setback in this plan. It's rather a lofty goal, isn't it? You might pray for someone and nothing happens. Listen, you might pray for 100 people and nothing happens. You might look back at your last month of your Christian life and think, actually, the only benefit I've had from Christianity in the last month has been psychological. Because there's been no power. It's been dry. Now, therefore, what do you do? Do you give up and settle for like a natural Christianity? Doing kind of Christian stuff, but no, I don't expect any power. No, of course not. Do you know why? Because you're not a son like Adam, and you're not a son like Israel. You're a son like Jesus. And Jesus could turn stones into bread. Step out as a son in the power of God. Secondly, obey God as a son in everything. Obey in everything. Listen, in our attempts to obey the Father, again, we will not reach the dizzy heights Jesus reached. We will not reach perfection this side of eternity. However, that doesn't mean what we do then is ring-fence bits of our lives and say, God, I'm going to obey you all over here, but that bit, you know, I do quite like those sins, and I don't think actually I'm ever going to get anywhere on them. So therefore, let's leave that bit. I'll give you three quarters. Surely that's fair. Is that okay as a Christian? Well, no. Thank you, Dave. Wow. I'll tell you what. It would be fine if we were sons of God like Adam. And it would be okay if we were sons of God like Israel. But we're not. We're sons of God like Jesus. And Jesus says this to us. Be perfect as I am perfect. You might think, well, that's impossible. That's, like a just, that's just an a, a unfair goal that will drive me onwards to madness. But no, it's not. It's simply a statement of your very identity. You're a son. Your point of comparison is Christ. Push on in the family likeness. Give him everything. Because we're a son, a younger brother of Jesus. Final thing is this. As sons, we should use the authority of God's word. You want to think what's a useful thing to spend time on for a son of God? I'd look at Jesus and see that Jesus spent a lot of time getting to know and love his father's word. He'd have had the, what we now call the Old Testament, but he knew the Old Testament. You, you think when you see stories like this in the temptation, Jesus hasn't been, you haven't had lots of stories up to now. What's Jesus been doing in those times? Lots of people speculate, going, oh, he went here and he went there. Well, one thing he's definitely been doing, he's been reading the Bible. You don't just, these ideas didn't pop into his head. No, he knew this stuff. He'd built it in through, through discipline for years. 
And it's not just he knew it, he believed it and he used it to reject the lies of the enemy. And as you look through the Gospels, he does it here, but he does it repeatedly every time the Pharisees come to trick him. And they never look particularly tricky. They look like they're kind of red rag to a ball, but they would have been tricky. But Jesus knew what was going on. I believe the word. Here you go. Have this. Adam and Eve didn't know God's word. So as soon as the temptation came, they caved. Israel, most of the religious members of Israel would have known the words, but they didn't love the word. So therefore, when the temptation came, they just went with the crowd. Oh, let's go and serve Baal. Look, we're not meant to be like those sons. We're sons like Jesus. And therefore, I'd urge you as a son to persevere, to build his word into your memory, into your thinking, and into every aspect of your life. You might say to me, Johnny, I'm not a book person. I've never liked reading. In fact, I'm just not very disciplined in these things. And in the time of life I'm in now, it's just hard to give any time to the Bible. You know what I'd say to those statements? I'd say, well, that's fair enough. But you're a son of God like Jesus. He is your model of sonship. And as he learned to wield the word of God with authority... That's something for his younger brothers too. So, as we look at the son, we need to be clear, there is no one like Jesus. He is the son. And we worship him, and you're going to have a chance to do that in a minute. And as we look at him, and we see him say these amazing words to us of, and you're my younger brothers. We know it gives us direction and confidence in lots of things, really. But I'd encourage you, step out in power as a son. Obey fully as a son. And use the authority of God's word.